Hello. Uh, hello. 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 Is this, uh, is this Don Schaffner? It, it is. It is. Who's this? Who's calling? This is, this is uh, Dr. Ben Chapman, uh, PhD uh, professor. Um, I'm not familiar with your work. Associate uh, thingy. Um, I <laughs> associate to the thingy. I think to the, the regional. <laughs> I don't. Have, uh, I don't have a bell, but not, there you go. You don't have a bell. I don't actually. I don't know. Oh, there's my bell. I've got it. I've got it close by, Don. Um, so this is good. I mean, uh, you and I had a had a plan to to meet today and and talk on uh, on this podcast, and here we are. We're doing it. Wow, <laughs> we're ex- exercising it only only six uh, minutes only, late. Uh, not only that six I'm, minutes. Not late. that I'm counting. Yeah. No, and uh, it would have been it would have been on time, except I I committed, I think what is a Aeropress um, faux pas oh, or dear. or even yeah, that might not even be strong enough. I made a mistake. Uh-oh. I I use my Aeropress at some time that I can't remember within mm. the last let's say month Uh-oh. in my office. Uh oh. And, uh, and I didn't, uh, I didn't knock the grinds out of there, the Uh-oh. grinds, the grinds. Yeah. And which is like rule number one on the AeroPress website, right? Like clean it out yep. as soon as you're done. Yep. Um, and I didn't even know about that. I hadn't, well, I knew about the rule, but I hadn't thought about, uh, I, I guess I must've made my coffee in, in haste and I went to open up and, and did open up the, um, the, I don't know, the basket that you put the filter and the, the yep. uh, coffee grounds in yep, with you. and, uh, and then a dried uh, coffee grounds went all over my computer. And oh, <laughs> yeah. So that was awesome. Oh, well, so I'm, sure, I'm sure they're underneath my keys and my keyboard. Now. Oh, oh, is this one of the new computers that gets, uh, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. This is, yeah. It's I like everything. Yeah. It's not, it's not good. So, um, so anyway, I, uh, I rectified, uh, that. Well, I don't know. I haven't tried to type anything. Oh dear. Uh, but but good news update uh, follow up from from last show uh, when I was recording and I still am recording on my uh, MacBook uh, Adorable mm-hmm. as uh, Merlin calls it, which I have adopted. Uh, but my MacBook Air is uh, is set to be back in my hands later today after a sixty dollar repair to reinstall uh, Sierra, not Sierra, High Sierra. Right. Uh, straight Sierra, we call it. Yeah, straight Sierra. No, no high. Uh, sober Sierra. High. Yeah, Silver so, Sierra. Silver Sierra. Um, so good Good news. I'll be back recording on, on my air at some point. And, and just in time for me to uh, have them take uh, coffee grounds under, from underneath my keyboard on my adorable. Oh, God. That's, uh, <sighs> that's bad. I, th- I thought where you were going with this story was a whole food safety angle. And you were going to say, and then I opened it up and it was all moldy. And so now I'm worried about athletes. Oh, but no, but no, no, I'm, I'm totally, no, it wasn't. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but I don't think it was that long ago. Not that, I mean, we could have mold growth. Um, but no, no mold growth. Everything was, was good on the, uh, on the inside of the, of the basket. No visible mold growth, uh, no visible mold growth, no, no off, uh, odors, uh, no, uh, visible aflatoxin. Just, <laughs> just lots and lot. I think, I think aflatoxin uh, fluoresces. So you could, you could hit that I, with some UV. Um, I try. Yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> Why don't you get up right on that? Yeah, my, I'll, I'll probably get on that uh, that UV. Let me get my uh, UV light out here. Uh, also, uh, um, 
just uh, to bring the listeners up to speed on the intricacies of recording a podcast. Last podcast, uh, because I was using this uh, adorable, um, I did not have uh, my call recorder uh, set up correctly. So here, Don, I, I realized what the problem was. Um, you, you recorded the show. We do this in redundancy where you record, I record. And when something messes up, then we, we both have a copy. And as I went to edit the show notes, um, I had no, I had nothing recorded, uh, call recorder. It turns out, uh, is a fantastic program. If you do one of two things, one, have it set to automatically record a call, which is what I have on my MacBook air or two, if you hit the record button, when we start a call. Oh, and so because <laughs> you were using your non-standard hardware, it, you did not have it uh, configured correctly. Yes. Oh, Fantastic. okay. How, how awesome was that? So anyway, now I can confirm that I am recording uh, today's uh, podcast in redundancy because uh, I hit the button that says record. And now it gives me a button that says stop, if you like. Uh, you know no, what? Like, but it's a stop. <laughs> what What I would suggest, Ben, is that you reconfigure that to auto record in the future, because I guarantee you, in the future, you will make that mistake. Um, and in Absolutely. fact, we we made that mistake um, uh, on a regular basis uh, when we first started using uh, Call Recorder, uh, and and then once it became, uh, once I became aware that it was a f- uh, a configurable thing, I'm like, yeah, I just gonna I'm just gonna record everything. And in fact, uh, real time follow up done. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's it's cold here in North Carolina. It's Monday uh, morning. Um, <laughs> are the crepe myrtle blooming? The crepe myrtle are blooming outside my window. Actually, outside of my window right now, Don, I see. Um, I, I I'm not very good at estimating uh, cubic cubic meters or cubic yards of mulch, but I would say there are. 850,000 cubic meters of mulch. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm not sure why, but there are just mounds like mounds that, that you could climb on that are steaming. Whoa. Uh, yeah, steaming yeah, piles of mulch, steaming piles of mulch right outside my window. Um, do they, yeah, do they so have I, that, do they have that smelly mulchy smell? They do. Yeah. It smells, it smells like spring, um, which is confusing because <laughs> it's not spring. But when I got out of my car, I was like, oh, that's, that's an interesting, uh, odor. Uh, yeah, we've got, uh, I, so I, I've shared this in the past. My, my building is right beside the, uh, Ralston Arboretum. I think it's J.R. Ralston Arboretum, um, which is, uh, our Arboretum here on, uh, NC State campus where, uh, where we, where we hold all the, the trees. And, uh, I think this is mulch from the Arboretum. So, uh, but it's a lovely, lovely view. My building, Don, I know we've, we've talked about construction and, and things in the past. Um, there, there is, and you, you are set to visit here in May. I just want to point out and you're going to, I'm going to put you to work. Yeah. Yeah. You are. What, 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 what am I doing in May? What, what's your. You're coming to the uh, North Carolina food safety and defense, uh, annual meeting. Oh, I am. I am. You are. And, uh, and uh, in conjunction with that, I think uh, I'm going to bring you to my office so you can see where I make the magic on my end. Um, nice. And right, a- another sort of not directly outside my office, so not perpendicular to my window, but um, diagonal to my window is a uh, a freeway of sorts. A, 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 it's, we refer to it as the Beltline that goes around um, the city of Raleigh. 
And the Beltline is uh, set to expand, taking with it um, pretty much my entire – the parking lot that is outside of my building – and the two buildings that are directly perpendicular uh, to my to my window, um, and it, we will uh, it, it will we our building uh, the the road that our, our building is on uh, maybe shut down for I don't know like a year and <laughs> no one's really sure how we're gonna get to to our building and and when that's all done you'll have a beautiful view of the highway. I will have a beautiful right? view. There will be no more mulch. There will be just um, uh, passing cars. I think that's a, I think that, that's a, it's a, a, an eagle song. Did they? Did they not talk to you? Did they not realize the importance of the audio environment for recording podcasts? This is a major disruption, Ben. It is. I have. So here's the thing. Um, in preparation, Don, I have asked them to reinforce my windows. Uh, to make sure that we are not uh, getting the sounds of uh, a cityscape mm. um, right right behind me. Uh, and and in the meantime, I think uh, I will also ask them to um, uh, eggshell the rest of my walls so we make this <laughs> a deadened space. Uh, I'm not sure that the, that request will go very far, but uh, it is it is in my demands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, so there, so there we have it. Uh, my building will be changing at some point. Uh, and I, th- I've mentioned this as well, but we are in the midst of fundraising, um, to build, uh, kitchens in, in the, uh, first floor of my building to four of them, four kitchens, three that are going to be for consumer observations and one that's a demonstration kitchen for videos. And, um, we are, uh, we are set to start, uh, if if all goes as planned, we will start building in uh, in January, and uh, they may actually change two things in our building. And this is total total rumor, but is is currently uh, being tossed around. One, the orientation with which we enter the building, not and and uh, when that happened, when this discussion happened, I thought that meant that they would just pick up our building and turn it. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Do I don't. That. I don't think they do that. <laughs> That is not how it works. Uh, they will just uh, put a door on the other side, which may change our kitchen plans and design. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, uh, the second uh, opportunity, because we are, or second uh, potential, because we are losing two buildings that which my department uh, has people in that are right outside of my building, uh, is that they may build a third and or fourth floor on top of my building. Whoa! Yeah, isn't that crazy? Go up. Go, go, don't go, don't go sideways, go up. Well, and given how close the beltway is and that, that it may expand in the future, I'm just thinking they just ought to like burn the whole thing to the ground and start over somewhere further away from the beltway. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I don't think that's happening. Mm. Uh, so I think we will, uh, we will take our footprint and we will uh, remain here. But all of this is in uh, speculation because we are currently in the public comment uh, period of the uh, Beltline expansion plan uh, situation. Oh, so, so it's possible that the, the Beltline will not expand? No, the Beltline will expand. It, it is What's possible is which way or how it will expand. Will it expand towards my building? Will it expand away from my building? Oh. Uh, will, it, yeah. will, it go, will it go up just like your will building? Will it go up? <laughs> yes. Will it go up? Will it go down? It's like a Dr. Seuss uh, <laughs> book at this point. Uh, yeah. Uh, and there are complicating factors, uh, because there is, uh, the university also owns land not too far from here, um, with, on which in the fifties they built the university club, which was a golf course. And, 
um, and, and tennis and, and swimming pool club for faculty and alumni, uh, which has historical meaning. And, and that piece of property is maybe impacted by this expansion and Meredith college, which was, uh, um, you know, traditionally a, um, nutrition and home economics, uh, college back gosh, I think it goes back a hundred years and, and a sister college to NC state also has a very historic campus and is right next to the belt line. So, so there are many, um, many parties on multiple sides of this, uh, um, situation literally and figuratively, uh, that like us and our podcast that are, uh, maybe impacted by the, uh, by the plans here. So, well, so anyway. welcome, welcome to North Carolina state university planning talk. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and if you say uh, a little later, uh, we will talk about zoning. <laughs> uh, and, and other things. Uh, all of that uh, to say, I'm enjoying the steaming piles of compost uh, outside my window this morning. Nice, nice. Well, I, only thing I have to add as a, as a closing note is, um, if you look at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum webpage, um, it sure looks like it has a pot leaf on it. I'm sure that's not. I'm sure that's a crepe myrtle or something, but uh, it sure looks like a pot leaf. I'm just it saying. Might. It might be, Don. Uh, you know, uh, when when uh, the belt line goes low, we go high. <laughs> that- <laughs> You're just an idea man. They're going to have to run with that. Just, uh, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, good, good gracious. Um, yeah. So, so here we are. Uh, it's it's been uh, not not quite um, not quite two weeks since we talked last, but there's there's a ton going on. Um, I yeah. Um, I, I started watching uh, Stranger Things season two, um, and uh, that's a, it's a Netflix show that everyone went crazy for this last weekend. Uh, and I fell asleep uh, the first three episodes, all three of them. And I don't know if that's just because I had to get up at five thirty in the morning, um, um, Saturday and Sunday to coach hockey, or if I'm genuinely not excited about uh, the show. But but I don't know. Um, well, and we we've been we've wait. been watching. Um, uh, the uh, Doc Martin season eight, which I'm very sad about because it, it's definitely the last season, and it's uh, it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's just it's just quite quite amazing. And what else have we been watching? Um, oh, I think well, we're watching a bunch of stuff, but that's that's the one that's that's most top of mind, and I'm missing it. I'm going to be I'm, I'm it's not even gone, and I'm already missing it. So. Wow, that's the, that's the worst when you lament like the last four episodes because it means it's over. I, I understand that, but, I, but the, that. the good news is that we're just going to start over. <laughs> oh well, there you go. Just go right from the top. Yeah, start over season one. Um, well, well, there you go. Yeah, we, we've been, um, we've been running around, uh, both the Danny, uh, selling her wares at, uh, art shows and me, uh, taking our children to hockey that, uh, the only, yeah, the only thing that I've really watched in the last couple of weeks is, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Stranger Things. Yeah. So I've heard a lot of people, a lot of people seem to really like the Stranger Things thing on the internet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I, I want, I wanted to like it better. It was, it's, yeah, I, I enjoyed season one. I watched the entire season on a plane on my way to Japan, like back to back to back to back. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, waited 18 months or 16 months or whatever, uh, for this season. And it's just not, uh, it's just not doing it for me, Don. Hmm. I don't well, know. Well, I, I have also the other thing. I, I did watch some television in the hotel while while I was in uh, Portland, uh, Maine. Uh, I watched uh, some more episodes of Rick and Morty, uh, which uh, is which is which is pretty good. But it's animated, so you're you're not, allowed, not, not you're not allowed to watch it. Yeah, Jack won't let me watch it. 
Uh, <laughs> I, um, speaking of Rick and Morty, yes. I, I do want to put a plug in because uh, as of recent, uh, the last four or five weeks, my number one podcast with a bullet has become due by Friday. Oh, and it, yes. And it's not just because you were on there, mm-hmm. uh, which we talked about two episodes ago, which was fantastic. Uh, but it, it, I, I'm just enjoying their conversations. I think they're hilarious. I think uh, the uh, Merlin and Max and uh, Alex, Alex are uh, just fantastic uh, conversationalists. Um, so uh, check out Dubai Friday if you haven't uh, if you haven't already. But it's a, ch- a weekly challenge podcast. But it's not really about the challenge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just about it's everything. It's just an else. excuse for them to get together and talk. It's pre- it's pretty darn good. Um, did you listen to uh, this week's episode? I did, yes. Yeah, with uh, and playing all of the uh, the 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 challenge uh, things that they had recorded for the challenge, the rap songs, and anyway, it's a uh, it's it's uh, it's it's just quite hilarious. So yeah, it yeah, it's uh, it's a fantastic show. Um, and do you hey, are are you a Patreon supporter? Do you have, you get the After I'm, Dark? I'm not, and uh, it's the and it's for a couple of reasons. One is like I'm I'm super cheap, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and and I how much did you spend I, on your coffee this morning? Uh, my, the coffee that I, zero, I put all the effort in all of the, <laughs> all of the labor was mine. The water was free. Um, and the coffee uh, was donated. <laughs> the bean, the beans were donated. Uh, they were a gift. Uh, <laughs> So, but not a good, great example because yesterday I spent uh, $6 on a, on a coffee, uh, that I did not put any labor into. Uh, so that's, that's a better question. I, I often spend a lot of money on coffee. Yeah. So for uh, one, one coffee a month, Ben, uh, one coffee a month, you could give up and have your free beans coffee and, uh, and then you could support, uh, uh, do by Friday on the Patreon. I really should. Now, what I, really, I, what I could do is I, I'm a supporter, and I could give you the feed um, uh, to the After Dark, but then I'm not going to do that because do that. you can pay $5 a month. I could pay $5 a month, and – and it's uh, there's there are uh, there are artists, and I really do look at uh, at podcasters like you and I as artists, um, but but they they're 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 trying to you know get um, get paid for what they do and they deserve it, and I uh, only uh, uh, currently consume their free stuff, uh, but I don't think you should give me the 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 feed. I so I'm not going to. Don't do that. But I want to let you know that I could. You but, could, but, I, but on principle, I'm not going to. I, on principle, and in fact, on principle, I wouldn't accept it. <laughs> there we go. Good. I would deny. Good. I would deny you. We would, our principles would would uh, would be in line or or not with each other. But where, yeah, there would be no. Just on principle, I would not be listening. Um, Don, I received an email this week that I that I want to read to you because it was really quite um, sweet. Um, and let me find it here. This is this is kind of related to um uh follow up but it wasn't follow up to the um to us it was follow up to to me uh and I want to read it but I have to find it I should have been more prepared to do this it was from a student and this student uh was a high school student and said that the very first um uh, scientific paper that she read was my going public paper Whoa. And, and yeah. And, and this was part of a sophomore, uh, uh, let me find it here. Discuss here it is from, 
and and I, I won't uh, I won't share the student's name, uh, but I want I want to read this because I thought uh, I want to read two things my my response uh, to to her email, but then the email. Hello, Dr. Chapman. First of all, I'd like to point out that this email is probably going to be a complete waste of your time. So please read this when you have no other commitments. <laughs> which, which way, way to sell it. Way to sell it. Yeah, you had me at, at the first line. As your lead, don't bury that lead. Um, I had to read your article on the early disclosure of food for an assignment for my science class. We have to write a summary and a reflection on it, and I'm writing this email because I'm procrastinating finishing my assignment. <laughs> this is the first scientific article I've ever read. I would say that it was very well written, and I enjoyed reading it. This is coming from a high school sophomore, so I would take everything I say with a grain of salt. Something I really enjoyed was that it was fairly easy to read and understand, which makes completing my assignment much easier. One spot I think you could have improved on was the description of people discontinuing to eat strawberries using the phrase, quote, stopped eating something that was good for them, quote, unquote. Other than that, it was a solid article. I agree with your, quote, questions for public health agencies to address when communicating a risk to, to the public, and I think that it is a good blueprint for public health agencies to use. Do you know if any agencies have adopted it? If they have not, I believe they should. I do hope that you do not take this as uh, as me insulting your intelligence, but rather a lighthearted response to your article coming from an extremely tired high school student. I look forward to maybe getting a response from you. And this rolled in at uh, 1140 on Wednesday night, um, 1140 p.m. And I, I returned from my hockey game uh, that evening and, uh, you know, went, went through my email. So at 136 a.m. after hockey, after I read this, uh, this um, email and thought, this is great. I, this is, this takes, um, you know, th- th- this is what the internet's all about to me. Takes guts that this, this, uh, student read this paper and really would like wanted to connect with the person who wrote it. And, and then, and then it said, Hey, um, I have some feedback for you, which I thought was, I thought was awesome. So anyway, I said, uh, not a waste of time at all. I appreciate you read the paper and took the time to reach out about it. Thanks for the feedback on the strawberry line. Good call. We could have improved that sentence and editing stuff like a paper gets tedious. Sometimes I'm not entirely sure if anyone has adopted it yet, but I have heard from a few agencies that the paper made them evaluate what they currently do. And indeed that some of their disclosure protocols do suck. Maybe they will improve. Not sure. You should probably go ahead and finish your assignment if you haven't already. Best of luck in your class. Um, I, I just this this in a in a week where I was I was somewhat overwhelmed with a lot of um, stuff on projects. I got this email and it made me um, it made me like uh, happy that you know first thing you do kind of forget that people read your stuff from all over the place, right? Like a student reading their first paper in a journal, pick this journal article, which is bizarre. Uh, and that, um, you know, you can, you can connect with people who, who might've made these things. And there are lots of times where I think I should email or tweet at or reach out to somebody and either get, um, tired by right, like the thought of writing something short to them because I want it to be perfect or just think, ah, they're not going to respond. And here's this high school sophomore who was procrastinating from her assignment and said, you know what, I'm just going to email this guy. And I thought it was great. So, so what I want to know is in your response to the student, did you say, uh, this, you know, don't worry. I, I'm, I'm, I'm responding to this at one PM after playing hockey. So I'm not at my best. So you're not wasting my time. <laughs> I did not. I did oh. not. I just thought, 
you know, a, a great email like this that came in at 1130 at night. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to wait on this. I'm going to, I'm going to email her back right away. Yeah. Uh, but I felt I was at my best Don. Mm. Well, there, well, there you go. So I have, so I have, so I have two, uh, two additional comments on this. So number one, um, the, uh, what I find it, that is very, uh, very helpful for those kind of emails that you really just don't want to type. I am using the heck out of Siri uh, for, for those. Uh, it makes for oh. a more conversational style. It's super low energy because you can just, you can just kind of just, I, I don't know, for me, it just real. And I, cause I, I, partly because I'm just not a very good typist, but for me, it sort of removes that one, one barrier from responding. Cause I can, I can speak out a quick response and it won't take that much time. So, so number one, that's a, oh. that's a pro tip. Um, and number two, um, I actually also had an interaction with um, uh, a fan this week, and I don't. Um, it was not related. It's sort of related to the podcast, but it wasn't. Uh, wasn't through the the website, and so I don't. I don't know if I can. I, I don't know if I should reveal um, this person's name, but I'll just say they are a second year health education doctoral student at the University of Toledo. Um, and this, the student writes that food safety is near and dear to uh, her heart. Uh, she has a, uh, a class assignment, which is to interview a professor who is on the tenure track. And so this is somebody who, uh, before going back to school uh, to at the University of Toledo, they worked as a food safety auditor, and they were introduced to the podcast about three years ago from a, by a fellow auditor. And uh, she just had some really nice things to say about um, the, the how much she liked the podcast, and it was a great company on long car rides, and it just was very, very, very nice. And, and we had a really great conversation. Plus, I also got to do a little bit of mentoring, and, and it was some really good questions about like what is the tenure process like at your university, and it just was it just was it was very clever. I thought of her to combine uh, this assignment with being able to reach out to me and also talk about food safety. So, so shout out to uh, anonymous listener uh, that I chatted with uh, a week ago. Uh, six days ago, uh, was really, it was really nice. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's, that's great. Um, we, we also, we have some other follow-up, uh, to, to get to, um, this is, uh, just again, I will follow up on, on the, maybe one of the, the greatest, uh, um, pieces of follow-up from, from last, uh, episode. Uh, so I will write, this came through Squarespace, uh, privacy, don't reveal my name or message content on the air. Uh, but, uh, I think that the, again, this individual wants us to, to talk about the thing that, that oh, she sent us. Yes, right. <clears throat> so I just want to follow up again. Uh, hi there. I hope this note finds you well. I just wanted to send a quick follow up for my email last week. Have you had a chance to look at our meal delivery service guide? I wanted to share it from you after reading your post food safety talk One Thirty. This outbreak is brought to you by the letter T. If not, you can take a look here. Is our guide something you'd find helpful to reference in your post as an additional resource? We would be so excited if this were a possibility, but again, let me remind you that, um, this individual asked us to not talk about this. Um, uh, right. Thank you for your right. time and, and consideration. And also, like, our post is actually a, yes, technically it's a blog post, but it's a blog post for an RSS feed for a podcast. So we're sure not going to go back and edit the podcast. We're not going to go back and edit the post, okay? So the nature of podcasts, Ben, I don't know if you know this, but they are serial in that they occur oh. one after another. And so there's a thing, I don't know if you know, there's a thing called follow-up where we, we follow up with something that we've talked <laughs> 
talked about on a previous episode in a future episode. And so um, that's what we would do if we were going to reference this resource, which we already did on a previous episode. But we, what we're not going to talk about it because they said not to don't reveal their it. reveal their information. Yeah, well, so and, I don't know. And, the, and the beautiful thing about all of this is that we are promoting them, and they will never know it. Right, because it's not in the post. It's not in the post. Yeah, we're gonna. Fi- we're not even gonna fix this in post. In no, the post, no. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, that was uh, a little bit a little bit of follow up uh, uh, on the on the follow up that we're not allowed to talk about. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's we've got some we've got some other we've got some other follow up um, in here, or at least a, a couple things that that friends of the show and, and friends of Barf Blog uh, reached out about uh, this week. And and so Don, I want to talk to you about. Um, cutting boards. You, you do. Talk, yeah. You want to talk about cutting boards? I would love to talk about cutting boards. So, um, here's the, here's, here's the, the cutting board, uh, thread. Um, so, uh, Albert Amgar, who is, uh, a retired food safety guy in France. And I'm not actually sure of exactly, uh, where, what Albert's uh, background is, but he, um, he's been following barf blog, Gosh, for 15 years, that can't be true because we've only had barf blogs since 2006, let's say from the start. And then Doug, um, as he has traveled to France a couple of times with with uh, his wife, Amy, who is a French literature professor, he met with Albert and have, has hung out with him. So Albert, every once in a while, will send uh, requests for, you know, for papers or some comments or he'll have translated a French news story that we put into barf blog. He's, he's a good, good, like contributor and, and friend of, uh, of barf blog. But anyway, he, um, sent a message to, um, to you and I, or to me and, and Doug yep. about, um, uh, cutting boards. And so his, 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 uh, his, uh, a message was, dear all, what do you think about this study? Cross-contamination and biofilm formation by Salmonella enterica cerevar enteritidis on various cutting boards, generally cutting board, in cutting boards in wood are better than in other materials. How could you explain these results? Thanks, Albert. Um, and then uh, Doug kind of looped you in uh, to this to this string, and you asked. Yeah, well, sorry. And so we have to. I have to excuse me for a minute while I rant. Um, so it's important to realize that the subject header of Albert's email is message. Okay, <laughs> and Doug's looping me in means forwarding me the message with no comment. Okay. Right, so right, I'm yeah. dropped, I'm dropped cold into this message about message about cutting boards. So <laughs> okay. already, already I am just slightly irritated because I, I have a certain, anyway, uh, see, see, uh, see inbox zero, um, you know, copyright Merlin Mann um, uh, for for how you ought to actually do email um, uh, and send email and write email. But anyway, uh, I digress. Go ahead. Back right, to right, you. right. I think you've. I mean, I think you've cap- uh, categorized that correctly and um, and, and captured uh, some of the um, nuances of uh, of the email string that involves uh, Albert and Doug uh, very <laughs> yeah, well. Yes, yes. And, just, just and, in general. and I and I, you know, I mean, uh, I, you know, I, 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 Doug is great, uh, but and he is uh, he's very he's not. I, I'm not sure email is really his strength. <laughs> um, and and Albert, I don't want to say anything bad about Albert because I, God knows if we had to write emails in French, um, mine would, would be, be less, less helpful than than his. But anyway. It's just, yeah, I, uh, anyway, communication, it's, I don't know if you know this, Ben, communication is hard. Communication is hard. Yeah. 
Um, so, so the email string goes like this. Um, what do you think about it? Um, I think wood is better. And then your response is, well, what do you mean by better? And then Albert says, um, some, if you read some of these articles and he gives sort of a, a litany of articles, you may conclude that cutting boards made in wood are better than other materials such as plastic. And then your response sort of again is, okay, but what do you mean by better? I don't know what you mean. And it comes down to, um, you know, maybe, uh, this final message that led to our, um, uh, to led to this discussion right now is that, um, he, uh, I he likes to use wood cutting boards at home cause they're easier to clean from his a- anecdotes or from his, you know, from his experience and that there is some interesting discussion around, um, evaluating cutting boards, uh, and, and their use. And, and I, I mean, I'll, historically this, you and I have talked about cutting boards in the past, but this is one of the, those, uh, truths in food safety is that I, I think there will always be this discussion of is a wood cutting board quote better or worse than a plastic cutting board and what about cypress wood and what about bamboo and what about marble and are cutting boards really uh, uh, a risk factor in foodborne illness and how do we control them and all those things get wrapped up into one sort of big discussion where ultimately some someone who asks the question wants us to boil it down to their, you know, which one do you use? And, and I think, I mean, as you and I have talked about this, um, uh, on the podcast before, and, and as we've both been quoted actually recently in a, um, or an article that's coming out from, um, uh, consumer reports or center in science, the public interest or whatever it is, um, where cutting boards becomes a discussion point. It, it is the true mantra of our podcast. It kind of depends. Um, and it's complicated. Um, and would, you know, from, uh, in certain instances, does a good job drawing, uh, bacteria inside the pores. And then as it dries out, it'll kill the, um, the, you know, pathogens, uh, that are, that are there. And that was some work that was done out of Dean Cliver's, uh, lab back in the eighties. And then in other cases, uh, plastic is great because you can throw it into a, a dishwasher and use heat to sanitize, but then the plastic gets grooves and all of these things have their trade-offs and, and faults. Um, and, and so I think Albert's message was about some, you know, some new, um, some new science here, um, that, uh, was published, um, in, in food, foodborne pathogens and disease. Correct. Thank you. Uh, and does not have a date on it yet because I guess this is an early release uh, paper, and it's this you know cross contamination of bio, biofilm formation, um, and ba- basically, um, and and Don, uh, this may surprise you. Uh, you could you get cross contamination on wood, <laughs> right? And and so and I, and of course <clears throat> because I'm a a little bit of a jerk when it comes to email. I knew that that's what Albert wanted, right. but I was, right. I wanted, here's the thing. If you send me a one sentence email, um, 
and it's not clear exactly what you want, I'm going to send you a less than one sentence response back um, until you can actually invest the time. Like if you, if you want an answer from me, spend some time writing the message, right? Like tell me what the context is. And, and that's just me being a pedantic uh, ass on, on email to Albert, who's, you know, probably a really sweet man and, and French. And, you know, again, thank God we don't have to have the conversation in French because I would be at an extreme <laughs> disadvantage. So, um, but, but yeah. And so, and it turns, and it turns out like, you know, and this is, this is another thing that came out in subsequent emails. Um, he didn't have the original article. So he was right. making all of this based on the abstract. And it's like, I, I am not for sure going to make a con a comment on, a, I, I might, but, but I would prefer not to have an in-depth scientific discussion about an article where I have only read the abstract. Right. And so, my university does not subscribe to foodborne pathogens and disease, but they are really good at getting stuff for me um, uh, through interlibrary loan. And so I immediately, you know, when I, when it became clear that I was gonna, that he had didn't have the article, and I wanted to read the article because we are, you know, this is relevant to the work that we do in my lab. Um, that I was going to, I would get a copy of it and take a look at it because, and we've because we've done research in this area, um, like there are potential methodological issues associated with the research, right? There's a way of doing research that's right and the way of doing it that's wrong. And so um, I'm going to consider that in, in what I do. But but again, and as you as and I have talked about, I think our recommendation, and it's only an opinion, is that, well, I'll tell you again, what do I do? What do we do in our house? We use wooden cutting boards for cutting bread, right? Um, and we use plastic cutting boards for everything else. Uh, we don't use glass cutting boards. I mean, I understand the attraction of glass cutting boards, but to me, it just seems uh, dangerous. And I don't, personally, I don't like the feel of cutting on a glass cutting board. It's slippery. Yeah, and I don't think it's terribly good for the knife. Um, we could, we could, we could make cutting boards out of stainless steel too, um, and they would be easy to sanitize. But the nice thing about wood and plastic both is that they yield, and so that helps you maintain the edge on your knife because the knife is not cutting into the, the cutting board. Um, and so um, and now having said that, I did obtain a copy of the article, but I did not actually read the article um, uh, to see what they did in terms of uh, in terms of methodology and so I'm 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 sort of scanning it right now as we talk but there are so there's there's a bunch of issues when it comes to cutting boards right and so and again uh, thanks to for to, for shouting out for for you know acknowledging Dean Cliver's work I think for many years the dogma was don't use wood cutting boards because right. uh, bec especially for meat uh, because they're hard to clean or the the bacteria can uh, absorb and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And Cliver showed that perhaps uh, our concept of that is wrong. That because of the oils in the wood, uh, which are antimicrobial, um, that you might actually do a better job of killing bacteria on wooden cutting boards. Um, I still think it's not a good idea to put your wooden cutting boards in your automatic dishwasher uh, because they're they're not designed to get that wet or that hot. Um, uh, on the other hand, plastic is just fine for that. And so that's what we do in my house. We, we have wooden cutting boards. We use them for cutting bread. We have plastic cutting boards. We use those for everything else, including uh, fresh produce and, and meat. Um, and of course, the, we between using it for meat and using it for fresh produce, we will put it back in the automatic dishwasher to get it, to get it clean and sanitized. Um, and uh, so, so what this research basically shows is it's basically looking at cross contamination and biofilm uh, formation. And I don't know, I don't know how much you and I have talked about biofilms on this podcast. I know that we have probably talked about it a little bit in the past, but my feeling is 
when it comes to cross-contamination, I'm not sure that biofilms are relevant, at least in terms of cutting right. boards, because right, right, right. now biofilm might be relevant in a produce packing house where you have a, a surface that's not sanitized on a regular basis, but a cutting board in a home, I'm assuming it's going to be sanitized on a regular basis, and I... I am not, uh, I don't consider myself a biofilm researcher. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that biofilm formation with respect to cutting boards and cross-contamination is necessarily relevant, right? Now, um, one of the things that they say in the abstract is uh, we re- they recovered isolates, ten, the 10 isolates from all unwashed boards and from all cucumbers that had contacted them. And then they talk about the presence of salmonella um, uh, 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 recovery Recovery ranged from 10% to 100%. Uh, they talked about bi- biofilm formation to a certain degree lesser on glass. But I, I, just based on looking at the numbers in the abstract, I'm not sure that they've done the math the, the right way or at least the way that I would do it. And so if, if we're studying cross-contamination, again, we know from work that's been done in my lab that uh, you really need to analyze the. You need to collect a lot of replicates and you need to analyze the data appropriately. And we know that cross contamination rates are log normally distributed, and so it's not about the percent transfer; it's about the log percent transfer. You can express it as a percent transfer, but you got to take a logarithm first, otherwise, the the statistics is not right. And so um, I don't know. Looking at this paper, it's not. Um, it doesn't really. It's not got a ton of data in it, and it's not really all that impressive to me. It's just looking at, um, yeah, it's just looking at the number of times that they recovered it. And so they've got numbers like recovered 10 times, recovered six times. Um, they, yeah, that's why these numbers are 60% and 40% and 1%, one, 10% or 10%, 10% meaning one out of 10. So yeah, they have 10 isolates, but they, it's like they did like 10 experiments. And so I'm, uh, having read the paper, I am not terribly impressed that this has really advanced the science all that much. Right, right. And I want to I want to point out one thing, and this gets into the methodological side of things. And um, and I, this this is where I I guess really key in where where a lot of my research and, and extension work lies is. When we say things like a washed cutting board, what does that really mean, right? Like, and so, so they describe the the authors, um, Dantas and uh, et al. describe washing um, as such. Um, let me find it here. Do, do, do uh, washing, washing, washing. I had found. Try to find something else. Something like a 10 second under hot water and then with detergent and then it was dried. Um, Okay, so here we go. Uh, The procedure, uh, contaminated boards were washed before they were exposed to the cucumber. The washing was performed with hot running water for 10 seconds, vigorously scrubbed with a new sponge, moistened with a neutral liquid detergent, rinsed in hot running, running water, and dried, and and so there. So we've got some steps. But what um, Dean Cliver's work showed um, was that that drying step with wood really mattered, right? Like that the the water as uh, the capillary action with the water on the outside of that board drew pathogens from the surface inside, and then as that um, board dried, it would. 
um, essentially kill those those pathogens and and choke them out. Um, and what the drying part to me matters, and they don't really describe how it was dried. Was it air dried? How long did they dry with, uh, some sort of a towel or a cloth? And without that piece of information, and especially knowing that that drying was what was, you know, the factor that that really mattered in Cliver's work, it, it seems to me that it's hard to, um, it's hard to see whether methodologically that, you know, they, they may have made a mistake there or not. Um, so it, you know, we, what they, what they, uh, you know, suggest here, and as you said, you kind of highlighted the the statistics. But in their res- response, they essentially say that nine out of the ten tested sc- strains were recovered from the wooden ones, uh, wooden cutting boards um, after washing, and fewer positive samples were recovered after washing in plastic and glass. Three out of ten, and one out of uh, ten, respectively. But to me, that drying step matters, and how they did it, and what it was, is part of the whole story. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So anyway, thanks Albert for the, for the cutting board, uh, stuff. Um, and I follow, you know, similarly to, to what you, you do in your home, Don, we do use wooden cutting boards, um, for, uh, fresh produce quite a bit, but almost all the raw meat or stuff that I am fairly certain that there are pathogens or, or juices on, uh, we use, uh, we use plastic cutting boards and they go directly into the, into the dishwasher. Um, we just recently acquired a butcher block Island, um, where more and more, I think we are, um, cutting stuff directly on that Island as opposed to a wooden cutting board on top of it. And I am like extra vigilant with the cleaning and sanitizing of it. Um, and we are salting it a lot, like almost every week. Interesting. Yeah. Just some stuff that I'd read on curing, keeping that wood from, from smelling and, and the salt that it dries, you know, it draws the water out. Um, and it's more from a, you know, preserving the Island. Um, situation. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I look forward to, uh, the long-term, uh, microbiological study, uh, yeah. uh based on <laughs> My, your island. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chapman, Chapman Island is it's Yeah, name. exactly. Uh, hey, house. Hey, so, uh, this did not, uh, this did not come in via the, uh, via the podcast, uh, website, but it is a question that came up on Twitter and it's actually, uh, relevant, uh, I think, to this, and this is a paper that was recently published in uh, Food Protection Trends, and it was on uh, water bottle cleaning. And so um, let's uh, let's talk about this a little bit. And so this is uh, an article, as I said, it was most recently published in uh, Food Protection Trends, and this is the November December twenty seventeen. Um, uh, issue and it is a paper entitled "The Cleanliness of Reusable Water Bottles: How Contamination Levels Are Affected by Bottle Usage and Cleaning Behavior of Bottle Owners." And we will link to this. We'll also link to the Twitter discussion. The, the Twitter comment came from uh, Austin Book, who is a, a podcast uh, listener, I think, and and a, a Twitter person that that uh, follows us, um, uh, tweeting at Fur Farm and Fork um, or F Cubed. Um, 
And so, and we'll link to the FPT article. It's uh, it's this god awful um, Trillix uh, thing that that IAFP insists on using for FPT, um, which is a little bit annoying. But we we, we you can we can't actually link to it. And the the table uh, that Austin emails us about is Table Four: the effect of cleaning behaviors. And they did they collected a bunch of data. They did a bunch of statistics, and they uh, they report on ATP levels. HPC levels, which is heterotrophic plate count levels, so basically total plate count or, or you know, the, that, 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 that kind of data, and coliforms. And then they describe, um, and there's a, it's a detailed table, but I'll just start with the, the very first few lines, which is where I ran into trouble with this. Um, they, um, they say uh, they divide uh, the cleaning into four categories, never clean the bottle, rinse the bottle, wash the bottle, and rinse and wash the bottle. And they report, like I said, ATP levels, um, HPC levels, and coliform levels. Um, the HPC levels are presented not as logarithms. They are presented as some number times 10 to the something, um, which, which I... It's, I find annoying um, right away. Um, the, it looks like um, uh, the highest ATP counts are from people that rinse their water bottles. The lowest are from people that rinse and wash. That all makes sense, right? I mean, yep. an ATP is, you know, it's probably, probably not ATP. It's probably RLUs, which these ATP meters uh, report in relative light units. Uh, and so that kind of sort of makes sense, um, although the never is lower than the rinsed. But when you jump over to coliforms, what you see is that the highest coliform, and again, there's a, this, a, it's not a particularly, I don't want to bash it too badly. It's not a, it's, I would not, uh, this paper is not ready for publication in my opinion. I don't, I would, you know, not to be too disparaging. I didn't review it, but, um, uh, that's, but, but I, I don't, it's not, anyway, it's, there's some problems. Things are not properly labeled. Coliforms doesn't tell us what the units are. I'm assuming that's um, uh, coliform <laughs> yeah. counts. Um, but, and but per what? Per, per Well, yeah, per bottle, I'm assuming. Um, yeah. uh, but as you go from never to rinse to wash to rinse and wash, the coliform counts go up, okay, which is opposite to the trend for a- ATP. And the HPC, the heterotrophic plate count levels, uh, they go up and down, right? And so the highest uh, HPC levels are from rinse and wash. The lowest are from wash. Uh, rinse is higher than wash and never is almost as low as wash. And so it honestly, it just does not make any sense. And so that's why Austin had tweeted at me. Um, and I think he's right. Um, I, I, but I have to say, as much as the paper is not fantastic. I did reach out to the lead author, the corresponding author, who's a a scientist by the name of Tony Kim. And Tony uh, is a faculty member at um, uh, a, uh, let's see, he is at the uh, School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Purdue University. So university scientist, but in um, tourism, not in in food science. Um, And I said, hey, uh, Dr. Kim, looking at your study published in FPT, table four doesn't make any sense to me. Is it true that rinse and wash clean bottles have more HPC and coliforms? And uh, his response is, thank you for your comment. My suspicion is this is a result of self-reported behavior, possibly combined with limited sample size. The way the study was set up, the microbiological assessment was correlated with a self-assessment. So that is the people told them how they handled their water bottles. Um, Some respondents may have 
they've indicated the cleaning behavior that they followed or believe they followed. Um, my uh, moving on to sample size. If the sample size was small, the findings could have been skewed. Um, anyway, he just says thanks me for the comment. So it's not, it's not, it's not great science. Um, turns out, Ben, uh, publishing science is hard. Um, I think there's probably room out there for somebody to do a good study on reusable water bottles. Um, uh, I it doesn't. It doesn't say anywhere in the abstract, and it, I don't know if it... Yeah, they say, in the methods, it says they collected 90 bottles, and so that is potentially a lot of water bottles. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know, Ben. Do uh, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the limitation comment, and, and it's sort of right there in their conclusions that um, this is, this is self-reported, and people may not re- recall uh, or underreport their their performance, and th- that to me, and I, I agree with you. I think that that is where um, things get problematic when you when you say, okay, here's the limitation: never rinse, wash, rinse, and wash. And we uh, ask pe- we don't sort of define. Um, exactly what it is to the individuals, and then they overestimate or may lie about it. And but then we go back and make these comparisons and say um, whether people clean their bottles and what what methods they they use. When we have already said, well, except we really don't know what they what they did, right? Like so, making those comparisons and then just saying it's a limitation is kind of kind of difficult because. Um, you're not really comparing the same things. You're you're comparing what people said they did uh, with, and and so uh, ultimately, as Austin pointed out, it makes it look like this practice or these practices increase the likelihood of coliforms. Except what is linked is the self-reported practice, not the excuse me, not the actual practice. It would be almost be as if you went out and did a study with 14 sponges and you asked people um, <laughs> how they cleaned them and then uh, you published a fancy uh, paper, science paper. Um, Lots of molecular biology. Yeah. But, yeah. but at least at least these guys did collect 90. Um, but again, I'm, I, this, is not, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the kind of work that I might do, but this is not the way that I would present it. I, I, would, I would say, you know, let's, let's – you know, show is there any correlation with ATP and HPC and coliforms? Uh, I would pr- publish distributions. I would try to make some graphs. I mean, they're just. I, I think, yeah, it's just not. Again, just not not the way that I would do it. Um, but again, it's good preliminary data. And if if I was going to do a water bottle um, survey study, I certainly this would be a good place to uh, to start. Um, to take a look at this paper and how they and how they did it, but um, yeah, I think it's 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 potentially uh, not not the best. Right, right, uh, absolutely. And and I want to I want to highlight you know just harken back to some of the stuff that we talked about with coliforms and my um, my issue with with coliform and where this one kind of straddles the line. So using coliform as an indicator of the safety of the water in the water bottles is is totally what coliform is used for using coliform for, um, sanitation purposes within a empty water bottle. I'm not sure what that tells you at all as it relates to the safety of, of it. Uh, how does that, and as, as you said, correlating the, um, the, uh, ATP and, and HPC, but, but even, 
I, I think more important is correlating coliform to potential pathogens in a water bottle environment, which is not, it's it, to me, that's totally different than coliforms in a water system or in water. Um, that, that environment can be contaminated by lots of different things. Like I should see the crap that my kids do to water bottles that they refill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and how they handle it. Like, like it's not, but it's not about the water, right? You can't say that the water is contaminated. It's about that. It, we're now looking at a, at, um, a, you know, a container. Um, and what does coliform in a container tell us? I don't, I don't think a whole lot. Well, you know, you, you, well, certainly, uh, HPC can tell us about sanitation. Yes. A- ATP can tell us about sanitation in a different way. Um, I, again, I, I come back to, I would really love to see a correlation. Does ATP predictive of HPC? Because ATP is telling you about biological material, whereas HPC is telling you about culturable bacteria. And coliforms, maybe, but I would want to. So again, if we get if we get coliforms in in our lab in in food that comes from Rutgers University dining halls, I can tell you that one that we will most definitely um, do uh, a further tests to see if it's fecal coliforms and to see if it's E. coli, and uh, we'll also do a, um, uh, a, a a typing to find out exactly what genus and species, right? And so more than the coliform count. Um, what kind of organisms did they find? And, and they, may, they may not have even taken it that far to, to tell us what kind of organisms they, they find in these water bottles. But to me, that would be interesting to know. Uh, not just are they coliforms, but what, what kind of coliforms? Like, right, is it, is it, what, what are the species? And I don't, I don't think that they, they did that. So they just, they just reported the coliform counts and that was, and that was it. So, again, um, you know, useful preliminary data, um, probably appropriate for publication in food protection trends, but, you know, and, and just not, not a, I don't know, not, not the way I would do it and not, not necessarily all that super helpful in terms of telling people what to do. I think still my advice would be if you have a water bottle, um, you should wash it. Um, and again, back to our discussion on cutting boards, if you have a, I mean, I don't use that many water bottles. Um, I do have reusable coffee cups that I take with me on the road. Uh, my wife who, who goes to the gym more often than I do does have water bottles that she takes to the gym. But you know what, when we come back from uh, a trip and there's uh, coffee cups, uh, or water bottles, they go in the automatic dishwasher and they get washed and maybe occasionally get a sanitizer cycle as well. I realize that not everybody has an automatic uh, dishwasher, but that is, um, for sure a good way to, to manage that risk. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Um, before we jump off of this one, uh, you know, the, table three that, that they refer to in this, in this paper is looking at the effect of beverage in the bottle in the past seven days. And, um, it, it, and I'll, I'll read from, from the results, HPC and coliform readings in the bottle that had beverages, namely coffee, tea, sports, energy drinks, soda, juice, and sliced fruit were significantly higher than those, uh, bottles that were only used for water. And, I just want to come back to this this concept that I've been hitting around coliform over and over again is um, there's quite a bit of work out there that says, hey, if you have a fresh piece of produce um, that you're looking for coliforms, you're probably going to find it because they're naturally occurring bacteria on fresh produce that fit the coliform 
um, you know, that are in the group of call forms. And so what I really want to know is not just other beverages, but how many of these that did have coliforms were with sliced fruit or and or fresh juices? Because I think that's part of the story here, too. That's miss, that's missing. Right. Well, and, and again, but part of the problem here is that uh, if you look at table three, uh, 72 water bottles had water, 16 yep. had other. Right. And so now now you're going to have to tease out um, that. And it, it's also in the past seven days like, well, OK, so I used it for fresh juice six days ago and I used it for water every other day since then. I mean, you just need a much bigger sample size. Um, so. Yeah, we I mean, could I, do this. Should we do? Should we like have an offshoot of this podcast where we just take papers that we think were poorly designed and then redesign them, and then give it? That's maybe that's our challenge podcast, and then give, and then give it to someone. We or need, we do it. We need we need uh, we need uh, Patreon uh, uh, caliber funding for that because these are these are not again. And, and we can bash on we can bash on this paper, but uh, props to them for studying more than fourteen sponges. Right? I mean, they did right. ninety water bottles, which is great but that's this is an expensive study and even this expensive study didn't really tell us all that much you know right right and and i, I don't want to like i, I don't want to be too negative and i think you said it uh, nicely there it, it's probable that this paper wasn't ready to be published but that this work does tell us a, you know, something right, right. like it, it it tells us that hey we should probably look more at this and not to fall in the trap of almost every one of my graduate students or every committee that I've been on where they're um and mine was the same way where in the conclusions for their thesis it was well we should do more research on this one there's this gives us a roadmap on what to look for differently and how to do it next time um that's that's useful that's not yes. a that, you know that's not a waste of that's not a waste of time indeed cool 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 um, also, can we just agree not to put pie charts in <sighs> any paper? Can we just leave it at that? Figure one. Yeah. Distribution. But the title is amazing. Uh, the distribution of water bottle age. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, my, yeah. my other favorite part of this uh, paper was um, something about where it was. Uh, in addition, this is the last uh, last two sentences. Uh, of the of the paper. In addition, one of the most interesting results of this study was that the use of water bottles for other beverages results in significantly higher levels of contamination. Apparently, comma water bottles are actually very well named, and they should only be used for water. <laughs> well, I I'm not sure I'm not sure that's correct, but it's good. I like the sentence. It's a it's a it's a nice sentence. Um, I'm not sure it's true, but anyway, very well named. Very well named. Oh, okay. Well, moving moving on, Don. So uh, yeah, so we we have one more uh, one more bit of listener feedback, and I apologize. I I don't know. I thought I put this into show notes, and then I didn't. Um, but I, I I thought I put it in there recently. Um, and this is an email message. This is a long and detailed email message from uh, as as they often are when they come from Chef Rachel, our our, our friend Chef Rachel. So, uh, did you want to talk about this? Can I uh, can I set this up and uh, yeah, set it up. Okay. So this is a long email. I'm going to try to get through it fairly quickly. Um, so she sent us uh, photographs. Uh, and so um, uh, uh, oh, and there's, there's a preliminary email uh, where she tries to like apologize for not referring us to us as doctors. Um, and oh. it's, it's okay, Rachel, we're, we're doctors, Please but we're don't. not, we're not the kind that help people. You, we, we, for, we, for, for you, we can be Don and Ben. It's fine. Um, Absolutely. 
All right. Uh, as you can observe in the top photo, unmelted fat is visible in the immersed portions of the bag, indicating it was just removed from the refrigerator. Most of these bags were in the uh, refrigerator a minute before the shot. These ROP bags have just been placed in the, the Bay Marie. This is how most of the cooks reheat the ROP products. I do it in the steamer. Uh, she goes on to provide information about the, uh, the Bay Marie and details. Um, uh, let's see. Um, so let's see. Um, all right. There's a letter that was circulated uh, by some people higher up in, in her organization that instructed managers to not handle ROP in this way and provided instructions. Um, uh, the the, the re- recommended instructions are to open the bag, cool rapidly, and discard within 48 hours. This has to do with ROP products um, uh, from... Uh, anyway, from uh, a vendor, but not the products that they produce internally at her university. Um, she doesn't think there's a high risk involved in handling ROP products due to the adequ- adequate repetition of policy regarding the handling of the product, the extra cautious cushion of time uh, where the product is sent only as needed from a tightly controlled central production to satellite units. Um, there's always a potential for trouble, as you can see. Um, so uh, basically, it has to do with... Um, times and temperatures for ROP. And uh, so uh, ROP products are highly perishable. They must be used within 72 hours. Uh, This means within three days of receipt. Um, What Ben, what do you advise in, you know, and again, this gets back to a larger discussion that we've had a couple of times on this podcast about the paranoia, uh, perhaps in some cases justified about ROP. And so, uh, again, you know, uh, our, we, it's reduced oxygen. So there's a botulism risk. Um, the, in the, uh, letter of instruction from the executive chef says reheat to 165 within two hours. This is rapidly reheated, but the recipes call for the product to be heated rapidly within 25 minutes. Um, uh, at no time has a bag of ROP reached 165 within 25 minutes in any steamer. And so I guess there's, there's a couple of issues. One, what's the, what are the technical risks in terms of ROP? But then the other one is, what if you have instructions that tell you to do something that, you're, yeah. you're, that your equipment just simply can't do? And, and doesn't that set, and that, and that gets to the heart of the communication issues, doesn't that sort of set people up to fail? Doesn't that cause... Uh, problems and so what? Let's so let's make let's make it this because again we can't I, I just I just can't do justice to reading this this very very detailed letter. But w- so what what do you think? How do you when you teach chefs about ROP and sous vide, which you do on a regular basis? How do you discuss this um, in terms of uh, in terms of risk and risk management? Well, so one of the things I guess where we start is what is what's the product, right? Like, so if we're talking about something that is um, cooked in in as uh, is in, um, as Chef Rachel here says, this is a, a cooked chill product. So we're looking at something that. Um, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of competing microorganisms or shouldn't if it was uh, cooked as per the code and, and correctly. And we've got two potential um, issues uh, uh, coming through. One being 
um, uh, clostridium botulinum spores that may, that would have survived that cooking process, and and other and I, I and other you know spores, uh, and then uh, listeria and and the the whole process behind cooked chill and Don I don't know how like part of the situation you were at CFP at all when this cook chill conversation came up. But I mean, the idea of filling these bags above, um, you know, 135 degrees is to take care of any of the listeria contamination that might be in the bag. Um, so we're, we're reducing the, the, the listeria risk. So, so for me, I'm, you know, we're focusing on, um, are we likely to get, um, these bot spores to come out of, um, their spore form to then go into a veg- vegetative form and then grow and then produce toxin. And all of that, which takes time and the temperature at which it's going to do it at is going to impact how quickly it happens. So that exactly what I, I just said is how I begin this conversation with chefs. I, 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 I usually start with some conversation about here are the hazards that we're worried about. Here are the conditions on which those hazards are going to create a public health um, issue. And the this 25 minutes of rapid heating is like this is the threshold that I, I would have a sticky uh, situation with because it's not it, – it may be for best quality. It may be for practicality. And as Chef Rachel mentions here, it's got little to do with um, – uh, uh, being able to do it in the piece of equipment and like, maybe it can't do that, but it doesn't really matter until we're holding this product at, you know, reheating, increasing reheating temperatures for, for longer than, you know, longer than 25 minutes. Like, I mean, hours, if we look at, um, you know, com base, uh, for, for some of these, these products. So it's, I, I, am I'm with you. I understand the regulatory reason why I can point to what the hazards are, but the reality of the kitchen doesn't put it. So these ROP products cook chill or otherwise, we don't, I mean, we just don't see a lot of bought public health um, issues. And in fact, the ones that we, that we do see, um, uh, you know, pointing to most recently the nacho cheese in, um, uh, in, in California, uh, is about a long-term hold of, uh, a low acid, low, um, oxygen food, um, you know, in, for, for what we believe is a, is a long time. It's not 25 minutes. Right. So, so I think from a communication standpoint, being able to tell people the parameters of saying our operating procedure says to reheat this within 25 minutes, right? Like let's, let's just assume that the equipment can do that, but you have, um, a a window of time in, in these temperatures where you will also effectively reduce the, um, the likelihood of, uh, of clostridium botulinum, uh, or, you know, botoxin formation. And, and so that's, that's where I would, I would rather see this go and, and giving those frontline staff, the line cooks, the chefs, whomever it is that's doing this practice, a sense of here's what, here's what we're trying to control. Here's how we're trying to control it. And here's your big window of don't mess up. But we'd really like you to get it cooked within 25 minutes for best quality or whatever. And if your equipment cannot reheat it within 25 minutes, then you ought to figure out what your equipment can do 
Yes. And then yes. investigate that as a spec. Like so often when companies will come to me um, with like uh, help with a, a process issue, um, my response to them is, well, let's set the science aside for a minute. What would you like the process to be? Like, what's the process that you know that you can reliably hit 99 or 99.9% of the time? And then I'll, I'll have, cause I can evaluate a whole range of things, right? For you. But, but why don't you give me your worst case, what you think is worst case? I'll evaluate that. And if that's safe, then or that that and I I bash people all the time for saying safe. If that if that meets parameters, right? If that shows less than a one log increase in pathogen X, uh, then then that's fine. And then and then I can write a letter attesting to that that under these conditions with these assumptions, blah blah blah. Um, uh, and and if and if and if your worst case is not does not meet standards, then then we need to talk about well, okay, what what could you meet if you tried a little bit harder? And instead of instead of this idea of, of I mean, I, it really does concern me that that the standard is twenty five minutes yeah. and they can't hit it because what that teaches it's like it's like the hand washing in the food coat. We tell people this long litany of situations when they should wash their hands, realizing that that's going to require that they spend 50% or 25, you know, 30, 30% of their time in the kitchen at the hand wash sink. And then we just sort of pretend like, oh, well, I, I guess you can't really do that all the time. So we just, we teach people, these are the rules, but they don't really matter. Right. And that's, right, the, right, that's right. antithetical to HACCP. What HACCP says is there should be as few rules as, fo- as, as possible, but we need to follow them Absolutely explicitly, right? It, it will, and here's the the other thing is let's prioritize it, right? Let's let's take a look and say if you if we knew that you weren't going to be able to do all these things, here are the rules that you absolutely must follow. Like these are the times when it matters way more. And if we look at hand washing, you know, after going to to the restroom rises above after taking the trash can out for me, right? Like if we look at public health um, impacts and and illnesses that we've seen linked to it. Well, and I would, I would say after handling raw meat is even more critical right. than yes. the restroom, right? Because it's 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 possible that you could have salmonella on your hands or Campylobacter on your hands after handling raw chicken. Um, it's unlikely that you're going to have salmonella on your hands um, after you pooped, I, I, probably, right? right? Just because, likely. because, uh, yeah. and again, and then the other thing that 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 is so important: if you are if you are sick with diarrhea. You shouldn't. It, it, no, no amount of hand washing is going to help, right? I mean, it's that's not completely true, but 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 to make the point, like if you if you have diarrhea, you should not be in the kitchen. Full stop. I don't care if you how well you wash your hands, right? Right. Absolutely. Well, and and so let's bring it back to to Chef Rachel's question here. This is the like the same thing. That twenty five minutes doesn't matter. What matters is the time temperature combination for the foods for bot you know, toxic growth, right? Like, right. Like give, give, give the individual with the big window is these are must have time temperature combinations for whatever it is that, that you're, that you're making here. And that right there is way harder, right? Like it's easier just to say, let's do it all within 25 minutes. Um, as opposed to let's look at our individual menus and figure out how close we can get and and certain things that are going to have a different pH compared to other things are going to need this and you know the, to get more complicated, but but those are I mean I'm a I am a fan of telling telling chefs who are increasingly more interested in the science behind what they're doing what the science 
would tell you the rules are uh, as opposed to the arbitrary 25 minutes. So that's the exactly, exactly, exactly right. Um, So I want I didn't I didn't put this into uh, show notes, but I do want to tell you about a a similar um, I I, maybe not similar situation. But one of the things that that I've highlighted within my organization here at NC State for the last um, eight or so years is that we we do a lot of programming in foods in extension centers and and not even just in extension centers but also in ex- like other specialists who who do programming around foods where foods are served and whether that is someone makes something at home and brings it in for taste testing as part of an FNEP program uh, the, that's the expanded food and nutrition education program that that we run out of uh, cooperative extension or whether it's a program that's happening at a food pantry where um, as part of food waste and nutrition we're trying to um, teach individuals how to make the best use of, uh, of foods that they, that they receive in you know from those pantries. Um, we, we haven't had like a fantastic set of rules on how to do that or guidance on what to worry about. And so I've highlighted this to the organization a few times and the more that I highlighted it, um, and the, I guess the, um, grumpier that I got about not getting a a great response, it was then said, okay, fine, you write the rules. So I wrote the rules and, um, I, that's great. Yeah. Um, but, but here's, here's the thing. And and this is the the process, right? That, that, that I think to make something work and be able to change these, these behaviors, you got to have a sense of what's currently happening. And what, you know, what I suggested with my rules was maybe a little too stringent on having people trained, but, but essentially what it boils down to is, is this with, with chef Rachel, what, what cooperative extension administration came back to me with was I, I know I'm, I'll have, we'll, we'll link to, um, the draft guidance that I put out. And then we'll also link to the policy draft that, um, that cooperative extension administration took my stuff and, and wrote, but then we had a conversation. This conversation was what about if we could come up with like 10 likely types of meals that happen in extension programming, like barbecue or steak and, and potatoes. And these sometimes are fundraisers and sometimes they're not whatever. But if I could give them just, just write the, the cheat sheet rules. Like if you're cooking uh, hamburgers at your extension center, even though this is a fully unregulated process that you should have a thermometer and that you cook the, you know, the, that you check that those burgers have hit 160 degrees. And essentially it, I'm, I'm doing the same, same kind of thing that, that what Rachel's presented us with, except I'm going to do this from, here's the science behind why we're doing it this way. 160 degrees does this and using it as a, as a time for that communication with our extension personnel for two reasons. One is I want them to be you know, better at, at food safety so they don't make anybody sick. But secondly, I want them to be aware of the science behind the food safety because they are often the front lines of food safety questions. It doesn't all come to come to me. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of questions every year that make it to a 4-H agent or an ag agent or a family consumer science agent. And we, we don't 
because they're also handling way more things other than food safety, um, they don't get a lot of training. And so I see this as a way to increase our capacity to understand and then maybe direct people, um, differently when it, when it comes to food safety. But I just thought it was kind of interesting that what, what extension, you know, what I gave them was, Hey, everyone who does this should know why, and what extension uh, administration, and I think really correctly asked me back was, why don't you just tell them why? And if they are going to do these certain types of meals, tell them what the rules are. Like, what are the temperatures? Not have them identify the hazards and and figure out what the risks are. So, yeah, very, 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 very clever uh, work on their part to put it back on you. But honestly, that's probably got you to the place you wanted to be anyway, right? It does. It does. Yeah. So, um, it, the, and that's the that's the back and forth kind of thing, right? Like, like I instead of me kind of complaining about it for eight years, like, hey, you should come up with a policy, and then sitting back and being like, oh, you guys haven't come up with a policy yet. And here's another example of an outbreak that happened in cooperative extension mm-hmm. in Alabama mm-hmm. and we need a policy. They're like, okay, fine, go make the policy. Yep. <laughs> well, and, and then, and then that's a, that's also, that actually is good for you because that actually becomes part of your extension program, right? Like, the, Oh, guess what? I wrote this policy. Here's some learnings from it. Now I can write an article about it. I mean, it's just classic, it's classic cooperative extension, right? Like I had a thing, a problem I had to solve. And so I solved it. And then I saw it in a more generic way and then I got to write an article about it and then you know and it's just it's really just um you know I was when I first joined cooperative extension that all of that was a mystery to me and and it's it's kind of thing that you learn over time it's like oh oh that's extension oh okay wow yeah okay I I get it now yeah and and I I mean you're you're bang on with okay now I'm doing extension and also in, you know, in, in my mind, oh, and we're going to have a model policy that I can share with my other extension colleagues across the, across the country. And maybe down the road, we can see how well we actually implement these. Um, you know, there's a, a research component to it all in the, in the aim of having better food safety, right? Like having less people be exposed to you know, potential risks or not. Let me rephrase that. Have less people potentially exposed to real risks. Right. Um, right. In, like, yeah, you, you had, yeah, you had, you had a practical problem that you needed to solve for your own purposes, right. To keep your North Carolina cooperative extension out of the news. Um, and, and boom, uh, yeah, you, 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 you did it. And, and not only did you do it, but you got, you got, uh, some extension, uh, programming mileage out of it. So yeah, yeah I would, I would love, uh, if you could send me, um, uh, links to those two things so that we can, we can link to them in the, in the show notes. I will. And it may be, um, we may have to do it after. I don't sure. think the second one hasn't been, uh, I don't have the electronic version of it, of the actual policy, but we'll get the draft one up, um, of, of the one I wrote. Um, Hey, real time, real, real news, breaking news, breaking news here, Don. Uh, I just had a question come in <laughs> as we were talking the food safety, making black garlic. Are you familiar with black garlic? Do you know am, about black? I am not. So black garlic, I've heard about it. It is an oxidation of garlic in a warm, humid environment that turns it black. And I think it's actually fermentation. Uh, I'm going to have to do some digging up, but I want to, I'm going to, I don't know if we'll be able to answer this question, but I want to give you this question to think about. 
Um, here's what the person is asking. I would like to know if there's any health risk of growth of Clostridium botulinum during the home manufacturing of black garlic. In case you're not familiar with black garlic, it is an oxidation of garlic in a warm, humid environment for several weeks. The home method I was looking into was to wrap whole heads of garlic in parchment paper and then plastic wrap to prevent from drying out and to incubate them in a rice cooker on the warm setting, 140 degrees, for a few weeks. I know that garlic has been implicated in foodborne botulism cases, and I was concerned if this home process makes the garlic, quote, age in an anaerobic environment that would encourage or permit the growth of clostridium botulinum. I know the spores and tox toxics, I think they mean toxins, can survive uh, at that temperature, but is 140 degrees permissive for the growth of clostridium botulinum to be able to create botulinum, botulism toxin? Commercially, this is done in large heated humidified rooms that I believe are aerobic. So is this production method safe? If not safe, would you recommend another home method to make black garlic so it's not prohibitively expensive, i.g. buying or making it in, in an incubator? Yeah. So, yeah. So this is interesting. So uh, while you were talking, uh, I found uh, blackgarlic.com, um, oh. which, uh, which we will it's link to. It's not available. It's not <laughs> Oh, and uh, and also uh, Wikipedia, which, as you know, Ben, is never wrong, actually has some good information about uh, black garlic. So it is uh, sometimes incorrectly referred to as fermentation, uh, but it is not a microbial fermentation. Um, black garlic is made when heads of garlic are aged under specialized conditions of heat and humidity. Um, so basically 140 to 170 Fahrenheit um, uh, for 14 to 40 days. Um, and I don't, I don't see the humidity there, but so I, and I guess my reaction to this is, um, if, if it's a, if it's 140 and above, that's fine. Doesn't matter how humid it is, but the key question would be how fast do you get to 140 and then how do you make sure that you manage that temperature? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, if you can do, if you can get it up to 140 quickly, within a couple of hours and you can keep it there reliably, then it's fine. Um, yeah. but, would but if a, you can't, would, if you a rice can't cooker be, would, would a home rice cooker be a way to do that? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. But, hey, yeah. but there's, but here's the thing. There's a way to, to figure that out. Right. And it involves having a thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the piece of equipment is not very, um, it, it's, it's not hard, hard to, hard to do. Um, the, the question becomes, and, and this is, this is a, an overall issue, right? Like low acid canned foods that are produced commercially were required. We are required, or the industry is required to use a retort that has continuous monitoring of that temperature. Because if for any reason that the temperature drops, um, in that processing, well, we now have a risky product for, um, for, you know, food, you know, food production in a, in, in a kitchen, those elastic canned foods, we, we don't require people to use it a retort They we use, you know, suggest that they use a pressure canner uh, and they monitor it, um, uh, uh, you know, correctly and ensure that pressure is high, but they're not, you know, that's not a continuous monitoring with, with, you know, data loggers. And in this case, you know, maybe we're looking at the same thing. Could you make black garlic safely in a, in a rice cooker? Probably if you knew what, as you said, what, how quick does it get up to above a 140? and does it continuously stay at 140? And I would say checking that on a fairly regular basis with the thermometer is going to tell you 
um, that it's holding its temperature, but it's not going to be uh, fail safe. It's not. It's you know we don't know whether the the temp you know the temperature dropped and then came back up uh, for uh, in in a you know a six hour period between my monitoring. So it yeah and, is, and, is it and also I would add. Rice cookers are not designed to operate continuously for 14 to 40 days, right? Like, so you really need a way to ensure that that whatever hardware you're using, like, that's not a fire risk, right? I mean, how 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 would you even jury rig a a rice cooker so that it does continually operate? I mean, if I was going to do this at home, <laughs> I, I guess I would set my if I if I if somebody said, look, you you have to make black garlic. Uh, I would say, okay, I'm going to make it at home. I'm going to make it in my oven and I'm going to get some sort of a data logger and I'm going to set my oven at a low temperature, but that is, that keeps that oven, that keeps that garlic at 140 degrees. I mean, this is, this is fraught, Ben. This is not an easy thing to do. uh, And it's not easy. The temperature, the temperatures are great. Like, okay, 140 to 170 Fahrenheit, no problem. That's that's a nice, good, safe range. Anytime you're talking about some sort of a food process that has to go for 14 to 40 days that involves application of heat in the home, again, yeah. I worry about fire risk, right? I mean, yep, so yep. that you've got to, this is not, this is, I, I, this is not something for amateurs. If you want to proceed down this route, you need to proceed very carefully. It's not like, it's not like you're spending the day in your backyard with your smoker smoking, making <laughs> exactly. barbecue, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's fraught as well. But that's at least a limited window. But this this has to work twenty four hours a day for weeks. I while you're I, sleeping while you're sleeping in your house yeah. that could burn up um, if it doesn't go right. I uh, I'm 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 I would I, this has some warning flags for me and not and not necessarily food safety. Like we can solve the food safety problems with this. Um, I'm just worried about the other problems. That's a really great point. I think I will uh, use that exact conversation in my answer. <laughs> it's boom. a good it's a good one. Boom. Boom, boom. Um yeah, so hey, breaking breaking news there. Hey hey, uh, hey Ben, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Why I, why is I, FDA <laughs> trying to block families of autistic children? I see there's a missing word there. Uh why is FDA trying to block families of autistic children from accessing raw camel milk, Ben? Oh, I don't know. And you've already asked me this over <laughs> over email uh, with the uh, I, the addition of why Ben why? Um, oh gosh! So this this comes from a friend of the podcast, uh, <laughs> David Comfort, uh, guest on a previous podcast, who's a, a self proclaimed raw milk advocate with without um, a, a backing in science or public health or epidemiology. He's a journalist, Ben. Uh, he's a journalist. He's a journalist. Uh, and, and in fact, if you look back at David's history, it's not really about safety. Uh, the thing that he writes about is um, government, uh, overarching government regulations over around food and policy and, and the government making decisions on what you can eat, and what you can't eat. Um, What's that? It's like so, that food, food rights. Is that what that food rights, food yes. rights movement? Yeah. Um, so, uh, he writes, uh, a week ago earlier this year, I wrote about, uh, ominous noises coming from the U S food and drug administration about raw camel milk. Also great lead. And in fact, as I read that, I thought of many of the individuals <laughs> who I know at the U S food and drug administration making ominous noises and, and for I, listeners of the podcast, you know who you are. 
I, I, uh, I thought about vaguely camel-like, uh, like, like if you're like if you're sleeping out in the desert at night with your camel uh, outside your tent, um, and then that camel starts making ominous noises. What would those sound like? Anyway, it, oh, they'd be ominous. Um, so the it, uh, David goes on to write the agency had warned the owner of a small Missouri farm, which accounts for the bulk of raw camel milk production in the U.S., to refrain from shipping it outside of the state. The owner had reportedly agreed to the FDA's order, and, and the history on this is that um, you know many, uh, as many food-related rules. Uh, are in the U.S. Um, there are state rules, and then as soon as that food crosses state lines and goes, you know, inter interstate, uh, now we have federal rules that 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 uh, kick in, and so the FDA can't really do a whole lot for raw camel milk production in a state like Missouri, where raw milk uh, is is a, uh, production and, and sales are allowed. Uh, but they sure as hell can get involved as soon as you take it to Kansas, um, which is what what they did and said. Stop Stop doing that. Stop taking this. Stop sending this stuff across state lines because you're, you know, this is not a, a product that we um, that we are uh, a, a fan of when it comes to um, the safety. So. Um, desert. St- so uh, now a number of media reporting the FDA is asking a federal court to allow it to seize raw camel milk from the farm known as humpback dairies. Along with the national distributor of camel milk, Desert Farms. Desert Farms is understood to be a key distributor of this milk, along with lower volume farms. Desert Farms website reflects the huge impact the FDA action on the availability of raw camel milk. Uh, site shows availability of pasteurized camel milk, but no availability of fluid raw camel milk, raw camel milk kefir, or camel milk powder. Um, so they go on to talk about. Um, uh, FD, uh, food safety news, but uh, I want to fast forward here a little bit. The government's latest assault on camel milk is bad news for family for these families and these families that David's referring to as um, uh, Desert Farms is understood to supply thousands of families ac- around the country, many of whom include autistic children. Many of these children experience a reduction of symptoms from raw camel milk, a more significant reduction than provided by raw cow's milk. Uh, Don, this is where things get a little funky, I think. So I, I am not, um, I will preface this with, I'm not the parent of an autistic child or, or a child on the autism spectrum. And, and I do have many friends who struggle with, um, with, with raising children who are autistic, you know, daily or, or someone who is, who's on the spectrum. And it's, it is, it is challenging. And I, I am empathetic um, because I am not even a great parent of children who are not on the spectrum, and I cha- I have challenges daily uh, as I as I raise my kids, and I, I can only imagine what it's like um, to to have other uh, you know other special needs and, um, within a family and and look for whatever I could do to um, you know to to impact. Uh, my kids and and who who are you know maybe dealing with um, symptoms that uh, of of autism that that are um, uh, you know, are, are just dif- are just difficult and and alleviating those symptoms is is something that I would if I was a, a parent um, in, in this is, you know situation I would be looking for it but I, I have trouble with this line because I looked after you sent me this uh, in in the in the Google Scholar in in the realms of Google about um, raw milk and raw camel's milk um, 
alleviating symptoms of, uh, of autism. And I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that the science is really there. Um, there, there was a paper that came out in 2013, um, that, um, that was published in global advances in health medicine. And I, and I think a lot of um, what I found uh, out on the internet around Rock Hamill's milk was reference this paper, and and I'm going to read to you from the abstract and and talk a little bit about the conflict here. Um, abstract: This patient report, and I'm going to I'll text you this so you can read it at the same time I talk about it. Um, the article is entitled "Patient Report: Autism Spectrum Disorder Treated with Camel Milk." Um, abstract, this patient report is about my son who was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, ASD at three years of age, and the effects I observed when he began drinking camel milk daily. Beginning, beginning at age nine, he drank one half cup of raw camel milk a day and experienced overnight with improvement in symptoms. His continued regular consumption of camel milk was associated with sustained symptom improvements for six consecutive years, 2007, 2013. This patient report is a roadmap of my navigations, consultations with the expert in autism care providers and apparent effect of camel milk on autism spectrum disorder. Ah, uh, this is a, this is a tough one, Don. Um, I don't know what your, what your thoughts are. I couldn't find much in the literature beyond this, beyond this paper. And I just want to highlight the individual reporting on, you know, a, a family member and someone who they'd be very close to. And I, and I think that as I read this paper, um, you know, and there are editors remarks, uh, in here that in this patient report, a mother shares her observations and assessment with effectiveness of safety of camel's milks for her autistic son. We believe this patient report helps communicate her experience and care of family received. It will also inform, inform clinicians about how patients experience the care they provide. We support reporting the patient's perspective. Ag agreed. I just don't know if the step to raw camel's milk consumption is better than raw milk consumption on autism spectrum disorder, which there's a lot of question on that raw milk consumption and, and based on, you know, this, this one perspective. So, <sighs> yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, the, 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 one of the differences between the scientific literature and the medical literature is that the medical literature allows, um, what are essentially case reports, right? And that, and this is a case report. Um, I guess they call it a patient report because it's it's not from a physician; it's from the mother of a patient. Um, and this is good. I mean, it's it, props to her for for writing this out in such in such detail. But it's a single individual, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's I. I I would be um, I, I would be skeptical. Um, we should have an open mind, uh, but I think, you know, it's our job as scientists to be skeptical. And again, I really wish we had better data on, um, on, uh, illnesses from raw milk, right? Uh, which we have some data and it does seem to indicate that there are risks and those risks are significant. Um, so I, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one, but I'd still say the evidence I mean, the evidence that there are risks associated with raw milk are pretty clear. I think the benefits uh, are minimal. Yeah. Uh, the evidence for the the benefits are minimal. Right, right, right. And, and, and rife with, and this, this is the tough part, uh, you know, being a, um, being a parent of, of 
you know, of two you know, relatively small kids. Um, I, if, if my child was, um, affected by, um, autism spectrum disorder or, or any other sort of list of, of things that, that, that where, where my child, um, would, would experience challenges, whether that be an illness or, or other, other disorders, um, I would be searching all over the place to, to alleviate the situation and look for, um, look for stuff that, that would help. And, and in that situation where you have high, high emotion and, and, and just at, uh, at a challenging struggle, I think you, you become open to, um, hucksterism and, and other, um, other situations because you're, 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 tr- you're trying everything you can. And I've just sent you a couple of links to include mm-hmm. in, in show notes. Um, FDA has been, been well aware of, of this, um, issue. And in fact, I think probably not, um, coincidentally, uh, the, um, Kansas city star close to, uh, the, um, the raw camel milk producer in Missouri published something earlier in 2017, uh, of, of FDA's mention of don't try raw camel milk to treat autism. And there, uh, you know, uh, the FDA has a, a page called autism, beware of potentially dangerous therapies and products. Um, and included here, they say things like, um, you know, they talk about chelation therapies, which I don't know anything about, or hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I'm not, you know, uh, but these are things that they have highlighted as saying there's maybe not science. They also say various products, including raw camel milk and essential oils. These products have been marketed as a treatment for autism or autism related symptoms, but have not been proven safe or effective for these advertised issues. Um, and, and so I, 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 I can totally understand not feeling supported by um, the a system if there was you know may, maybe you're you're searching to go outside of that system and find other cures or other um, symptom alleviation methods. Uh, but having uh, having a, a, a rooting in science and safety um, is I think is important. And in this one, and I you know I I I, I, I my message back to you. Um, when you sent me this was, Oh, David, show your work. And when I started to try and find what David might show for his work, I couldn't find, uh, much. much. And I, I, right. yeah. And I just couldn't, I, I wouldn't, you have this trade off of maybe, maybe this product alleviates symptoms, but also might expose your child to, um, other public health risks like Campylobacter and Cryptosporidium and, and, and uh, E. coli and Salmonella. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know where the trade-offs lie um, for individuals, but that's, you know, that's what I got out of it. Yep. Yep, exactly. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, and camel's, camel's milk is interesting. I had no idea that, that uh, camel's milk was uh, such, a, such a popular product or that there was even people raising camels in the United States for milk. Um, so right, certainly. Right, right. Have you had camel's milk? Have you, are you, have you consumed it? I've had it. And you and I are going to go in uh, a few weeks to Dubai where the only time I've had camel's milk was in Dubai. What did it taste like? Oh, Don, it was, it was, uh, I had it in coffee and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the full story. Um, uh, a friend, friend of, friend of ours, two friends of ours, 
um, Julian Cox and uh, Paul Hall uh, and I, we uh, hired a car for a day to drive us around the city uh, when we had a down down day. And we went sort of all over the place, went to the Persian Gulf. And the driver of the car, the first stop he took us to was um, this like what seemed like a back alley coffee shop and bought us coffee that was filled with like a latte with camel's milk. And it tasted like a sickly sweet pumpkin spice latte with no pumpkin spice that that was um, I, I do remember how like turning my stomach it made me feel right now just thinking oh, about wow. it it wow. was very very sweet and very um not 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 pleasant in my coffee and all i wanted at that point was was just great black coffee which is all over the middle east uh but no i had uh this camel milk and and maybe it's just like i'm not it's not you know within my palate to like it. And maybe it's a, a delightful, um, milkshakey, um, type, type substance, but it was, it was not for me. Good to know. Yes. So I'll, I'll make you have one when we go. No, uh, to get pass. Few weeks. Hard, pass. <laughs> pass, hard pass. Uh, so, so anyway, there's, uh, there's that. What, uh, what's, what, what do you, what else you got on, on your list? I think that's a show. That's uh, that's, a show. that's that's an hour and forty uh, something minutes of uh, food safety goodness. Um, it was. Oh, you know what? We should uh, we should talk uh, at least briefly. About, I thought I just found this article to be fascinating. Um, uh, it's not food safety related, uh, but but Ben, do you know that why we don't eat turkey eggs? Uh, so no, but you know this. Where did you see this screenshot? Because this came up somewhere. Maybe I saw it. Too. What? No, I don't. I didn't. I only saw a headline. <laughs> yeah. So this is an article from Modern Farmer. I don't know how it came across uh, my radar, uh, but uh, yeah. So uh, Americans. Uh, I'll read from the article. American Americans love eggs. At least chicken eggs. Uh, they eat uh, 250 chicken eggs per year on average. Um, and uh, we know people know about duck eggs. They know about quail eggs. Um, uh, even the, technic- the technically edible emu egg. Uh, but have you ever been served a turkey egg uh, or even thought about it? Probably not. So uh, turkey eggs are uh, similar to chicken eggs, uh, just like uh, t- turkeys are similar to chickens. They are slightly bigger. The, 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 the shell is slightly tougher. And the membrane uh, between the shell and the egg is slightly thicker, but not uh, but not too different. So, the, and the bottom line is that the reason why there are not turkey eggs is that it's it's hard to make money um, raising uh, growing tur- turkey growing uh, raising turkeys for eggs. Uh, chickens or ducks lay about one egg per day, uh, but the turkey lays uh, about two per week. And so turkeys uh-huh. are more expensive than chickens, and uh, they produce less eggs. So. Uh, you know, if you if you are in the business of raising eggs for money, uh, turkeys are not a good uh, uh, value proposition, as they say. Huh, interesting. I, so, I, I uh, didn't know that. So yeah, we must have seen it the same same way somewhere on on the Twitter or on Facebook because I I also saw this headline this week and just didn't click on it, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, because I, I was I I, uh, I just seemed like a very reasonable question. Why don't yeah. we eat turkey eggs? Because we eat turkeys, you know. I, uh, uh, so I'm, there you go. I'm about to eat the. I'm going to eat a lot of turkey in a few weeks. <laughs> a few weeks. Haven't I'm you, ready. Haven't you already had your Thanksgiving? Oh, we missed it. Um, we did have our Thanksgiving, the Canadian Thanksgiving on uh, October 9th, 
which is uh, also known in the United States as Columbus Day. <laughs> um, but I had stuff going on. I was going to Austin, Texas on Tuesday the 10th through the 12th and didn't want to have a whole bunch of leftovers. Plus, we had a bunch of Blue Apron stuff that was sitting in our fridge. Um, and uh, we decided to sit out Canadian Thanksgiving and, and just double up, do lots of turkey <laughs> on American Thanksgiving American this year. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, hey, that's a show. Um, thanks again for uh, for listening. Keep the feedback coming. And Don, as always, a pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad that I actually recorded this one, um, although this one is, is yours to, to edit. Um, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And we look forward to hearing uh, about how your computer is not going to work because it has uh, coffee in it. So, uh, yeah. So stay tuned, folks. Yeah. Stay tuned. On stay the tuned. edge of your seat. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Is your microphone off? Did you just turn it off? I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. You're here. Just not talking. I'm not talking. Um, Okay. So two weeks from today is November 13th. I am going to be here if that works for you. I have – I will be in – in Raleigh on the 13th and then the 14th I think I'm flying to Boston and then on to Dubai. Okay. Well, I I am flying uh, to uh, Chicago on the 13th for the McDonald's uh, Food Safety Advisory Committee meeting, but uh, I could do a a 9 o'clock recording. Deal. Yeah, that's perfect. I have a, like, my day is wide, wide open. So let's do that. And then do you have, like, a hard out at 11 kind of thing? Um, I have a hard out. Uh, I have to be in downtown Freehold uh, for a meeting at noon, so um, okay. so I've got a little bit of flexibility. But I uh, well, and I also need to pack and and do stuff like that. So uh, yeah, so it would be good if it would be good if I mean it's not really a hard out at, at eleven, but uh, it's uh, it's a hard ish out. I I like to put that it's a hard out. I do. I've started doing this so I can um, track my likelihood of okay if I make a coffee and we're late. Are we, is that okay? And so I'm going to put that you have a heart out at 11 to manage, to manage my time. There you go. Time management. Boom. Time management right there.
Um, so, okay, cool. That's that's a go. That's easy. <laughs> That's 139, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, because this is 138. Yep, cool. And then you have this one. I do. And and can you um, can you get me those documents or, or not? Yeah, I can get you one of them. Okay. Um, the other one has not been po- – I don't have it electronically, and it hasn't been posted by extension administration yet, but I'll get you the one that I wrote. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'll send you the link right now. Okay. Uh, cool. Um, and actually I'll send you an accompanying, um, PowerPoint on how I told our family consumer science agents about it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we need to talk about. No, I don't think so. Oh, when are you? When do you arrive in in Dubai, and when do you when do you return? That is a good question. I let's see here. I leave on the sixteenth. Okay, uh, and I arrive. Um. I arrive at uh, uh, let's see what this says. Um, Looks like one forty-five on Friday. So anyway, I I, I don't know the I don't know the exact timing because of day day, day time shifting things. But I arrive I arrive on Friday. Okay, cool. And then I'm there. I will be there Thursday through um, Monday. Okay, I'm there the 16th to the 20th. All right, and I, I leave uh, I leave late uh, 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 on the 21st. So. Cool. Well, there you go. Cool. Awesome. Well, I will talk to you before then. Anyway, in two weeks. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Don. Bye. Bye.